my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Now for part two of our social experiment into the Fast and the Furious franchise. Last week we watched The Fast and the Furious, the first of these films. This week we have watched the seventh film, titled Furious 7. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson has suggested, since he has watched the rest of the franchise, that John and I start off Mm -hmm. uh, this week for sheer consistency's sake. Well, we'll be getting into some spoilerific stuff about the other Fast and Furious movies during my What We've Been Watching segment. We're going to cover more spoilers than normal as I explain to you what has happened in these other movies. Uh, So just to make that easier enough for anyone who doesn't want to, is only here for the What We've Been Watching spoiler-free stuff, we've we've moved it. But I I will have some movies from the cinemas to talk about in a spoiler-free fashion as well, so stick around. Okay, so... First off this week, we actually watched this film last week, um, on the Saturday. We watched the 2017 theatrical version of Justice League. Mm Mm-hmm. How often have you guys returned to this since seeing it in cinemas? I I return to scenes sometimes. Like I usually do with superhero stuff, I might not watch it the whole way through all the time, but I go back to certain scenes that spark my interest. With this 2017 version, I think I've watched it about four times. A couple of times in cinema, once with Just John, the other with my parents, one other time where we got the 4K disc for the first time, and then most recently, last Saturday. I saw it once in cinemas, and then if it weren't part of the DC Universe, which is already on the list, I would be perfectly comfortable never seeing it again. Yeah. Okay, so this version of the movie is very choppy. It's a train wreck. It's a train wreck. It for Just to provide a lot of context... In 2017, early 2017, when production was still ongoing, uh, Zack Snyder left the project because of a family tragedy. His daughter died by suicide, and he felt that the movie's just a movie. Family is more important. And so the studio brought in Joss Whedon to do some pickups, reshoot some stuff, and essentially change the movie You're, a great deal. Yeah, you seem to be under... Do some pickups, reshoot some stuff. It From everything that I've seen, he seems to have been brought in to fundamentally alter the structure and tone of the film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the, the basic story is Superman died at the end of Dawn of Justice. We, we all saw that. Well, we did. Batman goes to form the Justice League because of the prophetic nightmare vision he had during that film because he believes there's a threat coming. The threat arrives, it is the villain Steppenwolf. He is after the three mother boxes that were left on Earth after a prior attempted invasion, and really it is a race against the clock to either protect the mother boxes or find them. That's the fundamental idea of the movie, you know? We get introduced properly to people like Arthur Curry, the Aquaman, Barry Allen, the Flash, and Victor Stone, Cyborg, played by Ray Fisher. All that stuff, fundamentally the same. However, the difference is in a massive amount of execution. This was going to be a mess as the product of two starkly different directors, naturally. And let's, you know, I not to defend Joss Whedon, because there's a lot of stuff that's come out in the last few months about him that uh, no one needs to be defending Joss Whedon, but... yeah. 
I, I do think that he, he, the criticism aimed at him in regards to how Justice League as an end product turned out seems a little misdirected. Let, he was doing what DC asked him to do. Yes. This is, this is from the top. It's not like he just, like, n- no studio would just let a director walk in months from release, less than a year from release, and fundamentally alter the film to that degree. Like, nobody was given much time no. to do any of this. There are many things to blame Joss Whedon for, it would appear, if you follow the news. Even on the set of this film. Yes. I, I don't think that the quality of the finished film is one of them. Mm. And it's not a completely bad movie, in my opinion. There are some bits that I really enjoy. I love a lot of the story beats here. And there's a lot of really cool action. I do still like Sirin Hines' version of Steppenwolf in the 2017 version. He has this sort of religious belief in the mother boxes like the vibe of him has been changed he he's more singular as a villain yeah he's more singular he's focused he's he refers to the boxes as mother which is a thing from the comics which is very interesting and as much as a lot of people have shit on danny elfman for his music in this movie there's a lot of it here that i really enjoy story of steppenwolf spark of the flash friend or foe, and even the Justice League leitmotif in this movie, and the cyborg music, I do enjoy it. It's not of the Snyder and Hans Zimmer vibe. It isn't. It's, it, is, it is a rush job, because Elfman was brought in with very little time. He was given, what, ten weeks? Yeah, like something insane like that. You can't score a whole movie in ten weeks. It's But then again, to say... Michael Giacchino, for Rogue One, had a similar amount of time to work on it. And, you know, whenever you bring an artist into a process that is already on its way to being completed, their ego is going to be a thing as well. Duddy Elfman, as the person who wrote, in my opinion, the Batman theme, had a dog in this game. And I don't think that it was 100% a choice from Elfman to bring the, the... William's theme for Superman back and the and his Batman theme back. I believe that it was something from the studio that was told to him and he did the best he could with the time he had and with what he was being told to do. Right, so the best way to talk about what was removed and changed in that version is to start talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yep. Which we watched on Thursday when it released onto Binge in Australia. HBO Max in the US and a couple of other different services around the world. This is the four-hour everything, including the kitchen sink version of the film, that we were never going to get, let's be fair, even if the the tragic stuff that happened in 2017 didn't happen, this version of the film wasn't going to be They weren't releasing a 240-minute movie. Like, when's the last time that actually, like, what's the longest movie that's been released in the last, like... 30 years. Hateful Eight is close. Hateful Eight and Return of the King are approaching 190 minutes, but mm. there's that's still almost an hour more footage. Like, this is gone with the wind level. Like, yeah. this is Ben Hershey. Yeah, intermission. We're going to play some orchestral music while you go out to the lobby and buy a bucket of popcorn. Yeah, pretty much. And that's the plan for any future theatrical release. It's basically go out to the toilets for 
the love of God, do what you gotta do. Because it's gonna have it's gonna be another two hours that you're gonna have to sit here. I I really really dug this like a lot. Mm. But I'm a huge fan of like Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice, Wonder Woman, and this felt way more in line. Yeah, with those than the 2017 version. A lot more hopeful and hopeful. Funnily enough, yeah, this is a less self-hating Batman. This is a Batman who has faith, which is a thing that he's not accustomed to. He is less self-destructive. He was an absolute maniac in Dawn of Justice. He was basically the secondary villain of that movie. Most interesting Batman interpretation in live action. Most cer- Certainly most interesting, I'd have to agree. But he's not the focus of this movie. No, the, the focus really is on Cyborg, Ray Fisher's Cyborg. What you saw in the 2017 version... That's completely different. Yep. All right. Almost 100%. I'm just not a cyborg fan. It's even the animated stuff that I saw, it's kind of like, okay. Look, it's more evenly balanced than saying that would suggest. Yeah. It's like having a Suicide Squad movie where the main villain is Calendar Man. Oh, I know actually, you want you your know you'd Man actually movie. like that. You'd actually like that. I would. Like, my, my desperate hope is for a Joker-style Calendar Man origin movie. <laughs> Back, back to this film. There is absolutely an ideal version of this movie, and it's not four hours long. No. That is everything that I've seen in the reviews have been, that's, yeah, that it didn't need to be 240 minutes long. But, like I said at the top, this is the version where he threw in everything. Yeah. This is the version we were never going to get. This is the everything in the kitchen sink. So does it end on a cliffhanger? Yeah. Nah. Uh, kind of, kind of. It's not a cliffhanger in the traditional sense. It's, as it's if a cliffhanger. Return of the it's, King ended a... with one of the eagles landing in the Shire, saying, "Sam, I'm here now. I'm no, here to John, fight with that, you." That doesn't make any sense, John. It doesn't make any sense. You saying that? <laughs> That's utterly absurd. It's a cliffhanger in the sense that every superhero movie ends on a cliffhanger. There's a few though. It's, it's basically there's a future. So is it like at the end of Batman Begins where he gets the Joker card from Commissioner Gordon? That's but like three different times. Yeah. The performances are much more solid throughout this movie. It's a better character arc for Batman. You get more consistent Wonder Woman. She is not overly sexualized in that awkward way that she was in the 2017 version. You get better Lois, you get better Martha Kent, you get be- much better cyborg the only character who's like even semi similar is aquaman but then again then again he wasn't tremendously bad in 2017 version anyway a lot of that stuff is still very consistent steppenwolf is a lot richer a character in this version he is desperate to go home to apocalypse and he he's not saying all that mother mother stuff martha (laughs) yes you remember Cat Lawyer, right? Where that lawyer got on Zoom and he had that filter on him that made him look like a cat? Yeah. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to... Uh, uh, take, take we're a trying look. to... We're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but... Uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's I'm here live. That's not. I'm not a cat. 
Steppenwolf kind of has that energy. When he's talking to the people from his planet, Apocalypse, he is like, he's being bullied something fierce. You kind of feel bad for him. You kind of feel sympathetic for him, even though he's a massive, he's a monster, essentially. He's also got a weird, weird hands, absolutely bizarre amount of fingers, just upsetting to look at. It's cool, he's very alien. The design is much more interesting, if a bit too grey. I would have liked some, like, red highlights on the armor to to invoke the design from the comics, because the design from the comics I really dig. In the comics, he's just a bloke, isn't he? He's a huge dude. He's just a big guy. But they made him more alien in this. How much does he feature? Because he was like... A lot more. He's a good... He's certainly a lot more. Okay. Well, that's not a high bar to hurdle. He was like, what, in like one shot of Justice what, League 20? What? Steppenwolf. Oh, sorry. I thought we were talking about Darkseid. Don't worry. Darkseid wasn't in any of 2017. Yeah. Darkseid is here. <laughs> and he looks cool. He looks cool as hell. Say, say what you want about this movie. It looks good. It looks good. I was initially very hesitant about the 4-3 aspect ratio, and I would still prefer one six nine. Oh yeah, I have listened to many of your manifestos about how the ideal aspect ratio is one which fills the entire TV screen. Because it is! Look, anyway, I, I, I would like everything shot in that, but... This isn't the lighthouse, this isn't... No. Yeah, let's be honest here though, if we were talking about Furious 7 in a one three three one aspect ratio... I don't think you'd be given at the pass that you're giving this. No, because I... Look, I prefer 4.3 over 235 any day. I like height in my image. And it the 4.3, you do about, like, 30... A, a little bit into the movie, you get used to it. But you, it, get, it used focus, to, you get used to letterbox, uh, Harley. I, I know that, but it focuses, it focuses your attention in the center of the screen... You get the full image just looking there. You're not scanning around. I think we should just do a bonus episode where we just let Harley go on and on about aspect <laughs> Look, ratios. All I'm saying is I watch a lot of television, like older television that is in that four three ratio. I'm more used to, I I'm very used to that. Well surely you'd be used to letterbox as well at this point. What bothers me with Letterbox is we lose the image height. Yes, but you you, you lose the width of it with 4x3. Not necessarily... Like, it's slightly wider than 4.3 here, too. Like, ever so slightly, which is odd choice. Um, Overall, the the movie is just a lot, lot better. Oh, yeah, Junkie XL came back and did the music. Yeah, for the most part, it's eh. But there are some really bright spots where old leitmotifs come in. Like, there's some real choice moments. That's that's really the case with a lot of Junkies' work. Ultimately, this is no different to that, but when it slaps, it slaps. It's like a mix between Fury Road, Deadpool, and some of his more somber work. Yeah, and this movie is much more hopeful and positive than Dawn of Justice was. That, that was something that really surprised me, going by some of the stuff in the marketing. Mm. And it's funny, too. Oh yeah, there were some really funny moments. There were some funny moments, well-placed jokes. It's not always funny and it doesn't always land, but it's certainly much more natural. And this is the version I will go back to more often. If you're doing a watch-through of the whole DCEU, 
How easily could you slot this in in place of the 2017 theatrical version? Pretty well. Yeah. There's only like a there's like one character who's a major inconsistency, which is Mera, who's like quite different. She speaks in a British accent. She says that both of her parents are dead. Which it, both things are not true in Aquaman, but everything else is consistent. And Atlanteans when they're just in the water speaking like a dolphin kind of clicking, whistling. But I I imagine that that can still be true, but was turned into just regular speech for the audience's convenience in Aquaman. Like, that's about it with the inconsistency. Everything else... Release the dolphin cut of Aquaman where they're all just talking in clicks. I'd actually... I actually think that'd be quite funny. I actually think that this is a far better movie. It is. And if... If it was, like, three hours, 30 minutes long, it would be absolutely amazing. Yeah. It would be better served as a series, I think, cut into four parts, but they they decided not to do that because there's rights issues. People are going to watch it that way anyway. People are going to watch in segments anyway. It's four hours, let's be fair. We had to take a break in the middle to naturally bodily functions. You guys just don't have the endurance. I watched Gone with the Wind in one sitting. I'll do it again here. The pace needs to be improved at the start, and that's where you can shave off a lot of the stuff. But at a certain point, it hits a really brisk pace. It does. And that certain point is about 45 minutes in. Yeah. And and then the pace is amazing throughout the Well, basically, the, the moment Barry Allen gets introduced into the movie, it just... When Bruce meets Barry... Kicks out. It just a, kicks off. It kicks off quite well. It's more consistent with the other films. It is more consistent with itself. And ultimately, I'm under no like illusion that we'll get any more of these films. It's not happening. It's simply not. They can petition as much as they want. This was a Hail Mary to begin with. This was a Hail Mary that was already filmed. You know what the solution here is? Just let Zack Snyder write a trilogy of animated films like they do. Put them out one a year for the next few years. Like, animated film would work. A comic book continuation would work. These are the solutions, not other live-action movies. Well, the other solution is maybe, like, do... Like, you want to talk about how this is a big boost for HBO Max. Do it as a series. Do an eight-episode limited series wrapping up that continuity. Yeah. Hmm? It Look, it's like, I'd like to see the rest of the story as... The concepts exist now, but we're not seeing it as films. No. Let's be completely honest. That's not happening. There are other formats that are better suited. But Harley, what if we all start to harass Warner Brothers executives? Maybe we could make it happen. Yeah, no. It's not happening. This only happened because the movie was shot, essentially. It was pretty much all shot. And you're kidding yourself if you think he's getting another movie. They spent a lot of money on this, though, didn't they? Yep. Oh yeah, Justice League was already one of the most expensive movies ever made. Yeah, but I mean, specifically in the re-editing and the reshooting and... Yeah, they spent 70 million on this re-edit. Well, there's a lot of CG that needed yeah. com- completion. And a lot of the CG's damn good. Like, Steppenwolf looks fantastic. His armor, like, the spikes of it, like, move and react to his emotions. Darkseid looks fantastic. And a lot of the effects, like when the Flash performs his big moment in the film, is stunning. I'd highly recommend it. You can do it in chapters if you want, or if you're like Lawson and you're a lunatic, 
take a full four hours to watch it. Uh, we watched it all in the one night, but, you know, my body can't handle four hours of movie. We also watched the first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This is the second of the Disney Plus Marvel series, the first being WandaVision. This follows... The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. After the events of Endgame. This is very, very tied to the idea of the blip. In Infinity War, Thanos snapped, half of the universe's population disappears. Five years later, Hulk snaps his fingers, brings that half back. And this is focusing on a lot of what that would do to society. A a group of kind of terrorists called the Flag Smashers have appeared. They believe the world was better during those five years. They believe that a world without borders, without any sort of government, is the way forward. Because that's practically what they had during the five years. Very little oversight, that sort of thing. And this first episode is simply setting stuff up. It's getting us accustomed to where Sam and Bucky are at the moment. And in doing so, it gives us really good Anthony Mackie and really good Sebastian Stan. Because it's seeing, we're seeing what their lives are like just in the world. We get a little bit of superhero action, for sure. We get a little bit of Winter Soldier action. The Falcon stuff at the start's really rad. Yeah, but it's mostly their civilian lives. And how does Sam re-enter the world? How does Sam react with his family? How does Sam try to help them? And how does Bucky get over all of the horrible things he did as the Winter Soldier? Because he's been... His crimes have been expunged. He is a free citizen, he's back as a civilian in the United States, and he has to deal with what he did as the Winter Soldier. This first episode didn't wow me, like the first episode of WandaVision did, but I think that's just the statement of intent of the show. This is going to be very different. They are spending a lot of money on these things. The budget for this six-episode miniseries as a whole was $150 million. Yep. With, with the action sequence at the start, it shows. Some of the trailers looked a bit, uh, but this looked fantastic. You get some really tight aerial action and the return of one of the side villains from Captain America, the Winter Soldier, which was amusing to see. I think the show has a lot of promise. I, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes because they're bringing back Baron Zemo. They're introducing the US agent who has taken up the mantle of Captain America. Sharon Carter is back. Sharon Carter is back. Who Captain America made out with just after the funeral of her grandmother, his ex-girlfriend. A fact that I will never let go because it was the creepiest (laughs) moment of the entire MCU. So, like, this is very promising to start off with. It just didn't really grab me as much as I hoped it would. It's it's returning with a lot of the leitmotifs from the movies as well. We get a little bit of the Winter Soldier music, which is, I think, one of the best like motifs in the whole MCU. You get a bit of Sam's theme. Henry Jackman obviously came back to do the music for this, because who else were they going to get? And the show looks it, good. It, it looks good. The acting is fantastic. They've, they've, they've put a real focus on these Disney Plus shows to make them visually look different from the broader Marvel Cinematic Universe. They do more interesting camera work. They, they take time for stillness in a way that a two-hour movie two-hour and 30-minute movie can't take. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it in 30 years. (laughs) And think of how many other ones, like, 
Like, oh, like all of the ones they've announced now, what will 30 more years worth of these miniseries and television series and spin-offs and things? How you'll suffer so. I'll spend like a year and a half on <laughs> Marvel television. Yeah, so this, this show is certainly promising. I hope it picks up in the second episode. It like, will. Accelerates the pace because you've only got six of them for this one. They were just laying groundwork. Next episode looks really promising. So, John, we also watched a sort of like documentary slash drama series called Mars. We've watched three episodes of Mars, which is a documentary slash serialized narrative about the first manned mission from Earth to Mars in 2033 who attempt to colonize the Red Planet. Now, this is a narrative following these astronauts that is intercut with pieces of documentary where you've got talking heads, actual scientists and authors, and people who know this shit, talking about what it will take to get to Mars, what it will do to a human being's body. What it'll do to their mind. The third episode has documentary footage of an astronaut who spent an entire year in the space station and explored how he handled that, how his daughter back on Earth handled that, how technologically that was accomplished. And all of that feeds into the narrative of the episodes. And it's just very interesting. It looks good, too. It looks great. They filmed in Turkey, I believe. And they they've made this place... Like, the color grade is so good, they've made it look like Mars. I know, it's the but desert. It, 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 but it's not overblown, either. It's not overblown, like, either. The CG could, is it, good, it too. Be, it could be very easy to, like, overblow the orange and the red, but they find this, like, very nice, subtle middle ground for it. Yeah, and you've got some good performances in this. I think the best performances are done by a Chinese actress called Jihai, who plays Hana Swing, and... Gunnar Corthy, who plays Mike Glenn. It, they're very good performances. And and it's a somber show. It's a somber show. The score is done by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis of the Bad Seeds fame. And the like opening theme for the show is just so full of doom. But also like the beauty of accomplishing this kind of insane thing. All right, Lawson, would you ever go to Mars? No. Why would I want Would you ever go into a spaceship? No. What 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 is up there that like, oh right, fine. Like if we if we make contact with like a Star Trekky alien civilization that has a fully built up culture and world and things, but okay, maybe then. But like what is up there for me otherwise? Why would I go up there to be to, to live among less facilities and less comfort than I live down here? What is the point? Like, go off to Mars and live in a shack somewhere and eat recycled urine or whatever it is that they're planning on doing. <laughs> no. Why would I bother? That's my point exactly. I'm barely comfortable going in a plane. I'm barely comfortable going in a tall building. I'm not going to space. Hmm. That's, like, like fear of heights. For me, if I get on one of those things, I don't think I'm getting to space anyway. The failure rate on a lot of these modern uh, space shuttles and rockets aren't very promising to me. Well, that's what these tests are for. Yeah. And sure, it's like, being the first person to die on Mars would be historical. I just don't want to be that guy. You know that um, (laughs) when, during the moon landing, Nixon had an alternate script 
that he was going to use if they had died on the moon. Yeah. Well, you got to prepare for that. Yeah. And it's like, and they they don't shy in this documentary footage, and it, even in the serialized narrative, they don't shy away from the hardships at all. They don't shy away from the tragedies. It's a tough thing to do. A main character dies on the way there, basically. And they show footage of, say, the Challenger tragedy. There are legitimate personal and philosophical stakes in this. And it's very good. I'm enjoying it a lot. Where you can watch that is on Disney Plus in Australia. Alright, I found the script for Nixon that was written... According to this government document, in the event of moon disaster, this is an actual memo that is available online through the US government archives. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. Oh, sweet (laughs) Jesus. It's fucked up, yeah. That's like not what you want to hear at all, especially that way of wording it. Oh my God. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. So, I love that the last paragraph is basically like, and every time we look up at the moon from now on, just know that the corpses of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are looking back down at us. (laughs) Just remember, there's a skeleton on the moon staring down right at you. And then a note at the bottom of this memo. Prior to the president's statement, the president should telephone each of the widows-to-be. Yeah, you'd hope so. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Widows-to-be. Christ. Can can you imagine how different we would look at the moon landing? If... Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And can you imagine, like, sweaty, awkward Richard Nixon delivering that speech and that being like... Look, man, think about it. If that happened, if they, if they didn't survive the landing, how much of a setback would that have been to the space race? Has anyone actually died in space, like, out of the Earth's yeah. atmosphere completely? Yep. A couple of, um... Russian cosmonauts. Cosmonauts did. And that monkey and that they set up. Oh, yeah. But we know about monkeys in space, and they're terrifying. Yes, I, awesome. I saw the documentary Space Chimps. Hi. Oh, I'm I aware. thought you were talking about Ad Astra. That's what... That, it, that is what I was talking about, but Space Chimps is, again, horrifying. Oh, my God. There, someone has done a deep fake video of Nixon delivering that alternate speech. That is sick. That is awesome. The men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Ah! Ah! Jesus. But anyway, moving on. We were wondering what what to watch. Dad got halfway into the Snyder Cut and wanted to watch something else. Uh, He'll pick it back up tonight, probably. We decided, you know what, Let's, let's have a squizzit to be. Let's see what they've got rattling around in the old birdcage. So we decided to pick up a trilogy in the second movie by accident. It's the Jack Hunter trilogy. You haven't heard of these. No. No one has heard of these. (laughs) I, I, I doubt even the people in the movies have heard of these. So we picked it up on Jack Hunter and the Tomb of Akhenaten. Akhenaten being the pharaoh who insisted on a monotheistic version 
of the Egyptian. This isn't a movie. This is, you've watched the second episode of a television miniseries. Yeah. It's it's structured like a film. It's structured like films. They aired a week apart. Yeah, but in Tubi, it showed up before any of the other two did. Alright. It's labelled as a film on Tubi. It's labelled as a film on Tubi, but anyway... Akhenaten's a personal favourite pharaoh of mine, just because of how ballsy it was to introduce monotheism to Egyptian culture back when he was alive. And he just has a fascinating story. This movie... Does not. Does not. <laughs> um, it follows Jack Hunter, played by Ivan Sergei, who listeners might remember from the last season of Charmed, and as but the character Nate don't. in the reboot of... Beverly Hills 90210. I guarantee you, every time you bring up a uh, Charmed reference, you are the only people that remember it, to that level of detail. That is very likely. I know I remembered him from somewhere, and I was right! It, this is a step down in the world. This is a step down in the world for everyone involved. Jack Hunter must locate the tomb of Akhenaten. Look, it's been found already, by the way. Um, but anyway. <laughs> it's in the Valley of the Kings. In the Valley of the Kings, my dudes. When was it found? Was it found in 2008 when this was made? Yeah. It, it had been found much before that. The Valley of the Kings had been explored. This movie doesn't care about your facts. Wouldn't it be like if the entire movie was like Jack Hunter and an Uber on the way to the Tomb of Akhenaten? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a far more entertaining film, honestly. That, that feels like a sort of like art piece. And... They're after some fucking uh, Star of Heaven artifact that will give people powers or whatever bullshit. This is like an extremely poor man's The Mummy. Yeah. Which was in and of itself a poor man's Indiana Jones. Yeah, exactly. And through transistive properties, this is a poor man's Indiana Jones in the hat of it all. But other than that, quite loosely inspired by Indiana Jones. No whip. No whip. No leather jacket. He shoots a gun twice in the movie. And he's got the charisma of a wet sponge, which is sort of the vibe of this entire movie. The music is perfectly acceptable by a composer called Jamie Christopherson, who I am happy to say has moved up in the world in comparison to everyone else's either lateral or downward trajectory. He hasn't hit any sort of summit. He was one of four composers of Dead Rising 4, which... I'm glad to hear it, and he did additional music on the HBO series Ray Donovan, which I have not seen a single second of, but it's got Liev Schreiber in it. Showtime series. Yeah, whatever. Oh, he was also a composer on Boa vs. Python, that sci-fi original movie that I talked about in our infamous Lost What We've Been Watching segment on Lake Placid. I don't know if you can say that this guy has gone up in the world, Jean. I'm looking at his credits here. And there's a lot of what appear to be lifetime movies. Diagonally, then. Diagonally in upwards motion. He was a composer on Fortnite. That appears to be his. Yeah, but so are so many people. Some some of the stunts are fine. You can see that there's a bit of a budget, even though the cinematography and the colouring doesn't look like it. I cannot in good conscience suggest you watch this movie. It's not bad. It's just not good. There are better ways to spend your limited finite time on this planet. Read a book. Watch any other movie, because there's a lot of them. Do charity for people. Go to a park to watch the birds and listen to them sing. Make your loved ones loved ones smile. 
crack a joke at this movie's expense. Spend your life in any other way. Don't bother with this. It's not worth it. You get really nothing from it other than a weird Egyptian colonel who has somehow got Donald Sutherland's eyes. And also, it's remarkable that Egypt looks nothing like Turkey. Where they actually filmed. So hey, they vaguely shot on location, which I appreciate. They didn't shoot in an in an Eastern European nation and try to pass it off as Canada. Hey, that's something. Yeah. Uh, but that's what we've seen with them week. Lawson, how about you? Well, before we get into the Fast and Furious of it all, I have seen two films in the cinema. First off is Raya and the Last Dragon. It is an animated family fantasy adventure film directed by Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada. Set in this fantasy world where once upon a time there were humans and dragons and they lived in harmony together and they coexisted. But then the evil Droon appeared. They are this uh, race of monsters that are born from human discontent and human division. And they are like these swirling balls of black smoke almost and they rampage around and when they come into contact with a living thing, they turn that thing to stone. So the dragons sacrifice themselves, basically, to stop the Droon, and they're all turned to stone now. But they used a magic gemstone that they made to put the last of their power into it, and they used that gemstone to banish the Droon and end their rampage. But in the 500 years since... All of the humans have turned against each other. They've fractured off into different warring nation states. They're fighting over the gemstone, which is the last bit of magic in the world. And they're convinced that they need it to be prosperous. So the movie opens with a summit that is being held. And it quickly devolves into a physical struggle for the gemstone. The gemstone falls, breaks, the Droon are released back into the world. And Raya is the princess of one of the factions. She's voiced by Kelly Marie Tran. Her father is frozen as stone in the process of saving her. His last instruction to her is to find a way to reunite all of the pieces of the stone so that they can banish the druid again. But all of these warring factions have taken the pieces of the stone and separated them across the land. We then flash forward five years, and this is a pre-apocalyptic world. Almost everyone has been wiped out. The only people that are left are in these cities that are are walled or separated by a motor and things like that. Humankind is on the edge of extinction. And Raya has been looking all of this time for a way to stop the Droon. She thinks she's found it. She's going to summon the last dragon, the one that sacrificed herself, activating the gemstone the first time, Sisu, who is voiced by Aquafina. She manages to do that, and they set out across the world to gather these gemstones and save the world again. This is just stunning. This is top-tier Disney. I got a real Del Toro Quest vibe from it. Yeah? Yeah, the whole sort of land overrun by dark forces, and then they've got to go to all of the different places to retrieve the gemstone. So it's like a proper Godzilla's Quest movie. Oh yeah, very much so. It's got a real great classical fantasy feel to it. And it, it, it is somewhat dystopian. The Droon are creepy. And after that six-year time lapse, there are scenes where Raya will just walk through a deserted city that's just packed with 
stone statues of these people who were overrun. It has that feeling of the end coming, that everyone knows the end is coming. This is like The Walking Dead, but with monsters that turn people to stone rather than zombies. It is kind of dark, too. It's it's dark in that way that's sort of just right for a children's movie, that way that is liable to stick in your head if you're a kid and, and for you to roll it over in your head like that. I think it's pretty effective in that. And the characters are just great. Sisu is not what anyone expected she would be. She isn't this wise old dragon of legend. She is a naive, goofy, somewhat incompetent young dragon. Very Aquafina-esque. And she and Raya have this back and forth through the film because Raya has become very cynical and world-weary about the way people treat each other, the way they turn on each other, that you can't trust people. Basically, it, it really is commenting a lot on current societal divisions in real life. And Sisu is just like, no, everyone needs to get along. Everyone needs to, you know, work together. And it's this back and forth between the two of them that is, it doesn't talk down to the audience. It doesn't suggest some sort of easy answer to it. It does simplify things, obviously, it's a children's film, but I, I appreciated the tone and tenor of the way that they were dealing with this subject matter. And you get some very fun supporting characters too that are all have been had their lost their families by the droon. There is this little cat burglar baby who is hustling tourists on the streets of, of a Venice like city that they find and comes along for the ride. The cast for these characters are all just perfect. Like the cast is brilliant and it plays really well. It plays like a great old-fashioned fantasy quest movie with the, all of these different people interacting with each other in a really interesting and likeable way on their way through all of these different environments, from the desert to the forests. You know, it's it's all very different environments as they get to the different countries to find the different gems. The, there's a lot of action in it, a lot of... Uh, this is very heavily inspired by Asian art and Asian culture. All of the cast is Asian. The designs of the characters and of the world... Uh, and the buildings and things are very Asian-inspired. And there's a lot of sword fights, like samurai-style sword fights. And that's done brilliantly. It's very dynamic. Um, one of the things that really interests me about this movie is Kelly Marie Tran. I liked her a lot in her role as Rose in the Star Wars movies. So it's really good to see her still getting work, because she was treated very poorly after she was included in Star Wars. Yeah, she's she's good here. The whole cast is good here. It's it's a, a it's nice to see like this big cast of Asian actors that you've got Kelly Marie Tran, you've got Aquafina, you've got Daniel Day Kim, you've got Benedict Wong. Yeah, love me some Benedict Wong. He's my boy. You've got Gemma Chan and Sandra Oh. Isn't Sandra Oh from Grey's Anatomy? Grey's Anatomy and Killing Eve. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I like her as an actor. Yeah, she's good too. And, and it's just gorgeous. Like, it, it, the animation here, it's just stunning. It has got such striking composition and atmosphere. The environments all, are almost photorealistic. They are absolutely incredible. The characters' in expressions and movement are just so detailed. It is the best-looking animated film I have ever seen. That's very high praise, because you've seen a lot of really good animated movies. It's got a good James Newton Howard score as well. And I mentioned, like, last week that 
Atlantis and Treasure Planet were the ones that I was waiting for the live action remake of. I'm already like this. This would be like an outstanding live action young adult fantasy film, which I'm sure when they get a, they finish remaking all of the '90s and 2000s ones, they'll move on to monetizing the nostalgia of the next generation, and we'll start seeing the Frozens and the Tangleds and the Moanas and the Rise. Home on the Range. No one's making a Home uh, Home on the Range live action remake, Sean. <laughs> that movie would be so so very terrifying. <laughs> uh, I just brought you back, didn't I, Holly? I I dragged you into the past, kicking and screaming just then. I'm sorry, I just blacked out there for a second, imagining what that would have looked like in live action. <laughs> Next, I watched a movie called Blackbird. It's a drama directed by Roger Michel. It's based on the Danish film Silent Heart. Uh, and it's about this terminally ill woman named Lily, played by Susan Sarandon. She has ALS. She's a few months away from losing all motor function in her body, not even being able to swallow anymore, and really just basically becoming a, a consciousness locked in a body that can't move. And so she has decided that she's going to take her own life. And she summons her family for the weekend to say goodbye. This is a really bittersweet movie. It's all about the family and the different members of it reacting to the impending death here. You've got a very limited cast. It is only these people in an isolated lakeside house. It's obviously Lily, Susan Sarandon. You've got her husband, Paul, played by Sam Neill. Yes. Her older daughter, Jennifer, played by Kate Winslet. Her younger daughter, Anna, played by Mia Wasikowska. Kate Winslet's character's husband, Michael, played by Rain Wilson. Dwight from The Office gets to make out with Kate Winslet in this movie. Fuck you, Rain Wilson. <laughs> like, how, have I, have I not, how, how have I not heard of this? I like all of these actors. Michael and Jennifer's son, Jonathan, the t- a teenager, the youngest person there, is uh, played by Anson Booth. Chris is the uh, the female lover of, of Anna, the Mia Wasikowska character. Chris is played by Bex Taylor-Klaus. And there is the oldest friend of Lily, who is uh, played by Lindsay Duncan. And over the course of this film, while they're all at this house together, fractures are revealed. The way that everyone is emotionally responding to this unresolved issues they might have in the past with each other that they're running out of time to deal with. Everyone is really textured and human here. Everyone has flaws. No one's perfect. Kate Winslet is this incredibly overbearing character who is incredibly irritating uh, and you just like would hate to have her as a close family member because of the way that she inserts herself in everything and tries to control everything. And her husband, Michael, is just... The dullest, most milquetoast man on the face of the earth. You could sell him as a cure for insomnia. That's how they all start out. But as the movie continues, you start to see actually the underlying emotional drive behind all of that. And you start to see the dimensions to them. And you start gaining sympathy and attachment to them as you see them navigate this sort of emotional obstacle course that is this weekend. It's an excellent script. And... They are all fantastic performances. It really is just characters in a house together talking for 90 minutes. So close time, close space? Yeah, not, not really close time. It takes, takes place over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But yes, it is just in this house pretty much. 
you get very long conversation scenes that are just groups talking. You get the different characters pairing off in different pairs to sort of see the different dynamics. And Michelle does something really interesting where he holds static shots a long time. Rather than do the normal universal coverage of all of the different actors in a group scene, he will often pick a spot in the room where you can see all of the actors and just hold that shot. Hold it as a static shot. Like, sort of like theatre stage. And just sort of hold it for like two minutes or more as these, as these actors do their thing. And it's really effective. But then other times he'll, especially when the emotions get a little bit wilder, he'll get a little more involved in the editing and... and you see, that's that's the way to do it, you know? It, 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 it comes... The emotion comes through in the editing. There are, there are just some fantastic scenes here. There's a scene, like the last dinner that they have as a family before uh, she takes her own life, which is just sort of the the awkwardness of what that would be, which then gradually evolves into people opening up a little bit more and reminiscing and laughing. And it's it's just a long, probably 15-minute scene of all of these people at a table, and it just gets gradually more, I don't know, emotional and involved, and it, it just unfolds in a really interesting way where you just have these powerhouse actors sitting around a table bouncing off of each other with a really good script. I particularly liked the relationship between Lily and her grandson, uh, Jonathan, who is the only one who's not walking on eggshells around her. And that seems to be why she enjoys being around him, because he will just ask her questions. He will just ask questions about what, how exactly is this going to work? She asks him questions. You know, there's a, there's a scene where they're just hanging out together and she asks him... So is there anything that you are that you haven't told the family? You're not gay, you're not trans, you're not something else I don't know about yet? Like, is there a secret that everyone else is going to find out that I'm not going to have a chance to? And then later on at the dinner, as everyone's loosening up a bit and the wine's coming out and everyone's passing around the wine, this teenager, this kid, asks for wine. And he's like, oh, I've had it before, I've had it before. And Kate wins. It's like, no, you're not having wine, you're not having wine. Well, it's illegal. And he goes, well, so's killing grandma. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just a nice little I don't know it's a very strange it's it, it's a very strange the way that it sort of plops the the viewer down among this family and and watches them all bounce off of each other it's a really So it all feels really natural. It feels really really natural, yes. I will say that there is maybe one too many complications, emotional complications. There is one thing that I just think plays a little too Hollywood that they probably could have got rid of and um Sam Neill kind of gets short shrift here. He he is playing the supportive husband. Like before we get before the movie starts, he and his wife have already come to terms with what's going to happen. It really is the children and and their problems that are the focus here. But it's it's a really good movie. It's actually from 2019. It it played festivals then. It got a got a cinema release such as it is in uh, America last year and it has come out to Australian cinemas now. So, yeah, it's it's just a really well-acted, well-written movie that is bittersweet and emotional and just a, just a really interesting exploration of this family. I was the youngest person in the theatre by far. <laughs> My 60-year-old mother was probably the next youngest. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was a lot of lot of much older people. I don't know if they were looking for tips or something, but there you go. Dark. I like it. Anyways, 
Now we move on to Too Fast, Too Furious. And I will just say that this is open spoilers now for Too Fast, Too Furious, The Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious, Fast Five, and Fast and Furious Six. So be aware that open spoilers now. We're, we're going to have our question and answer session here, guys. So we start off with Too Fast, Too Furious. It's an action crime film directed by John Singleton. It picks up with Brian O'Connor, played once again by Paul Walker. He is on the run after letting Dominic Toretto go at the end of the first film. And the police and FBI catch up to him in Miami and they make him a, they make him a deal. They're going to send him undercover into a drug organization because sending him undercover worked so well the last time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in exchange for immunity, he's going to do this. He's going to basically collect evidence against this drug cartel leader, Carter Verone, played by Cole Hauser. And to do this, he enlists his childhood buddy and fellow racing enthusiast Roman Pierce, played by Tyrese Gibson. You will have seen him in Furious 7. Yes. He enlists Roman to help him out. This is certainly the most generic of all of the Fast and Furious movies. They're figuring it out. What is this franchise? Is it even a franchise? Let's let's make Brian the lead. This is the only one that Vin Diesel is not in at all. This remains an important movie, though. It introduces Roman and it also introduces Tej, played by Ludacris, who you will also see in Furious 7. But it badly misses Dom. Brian isn't enough to anchor the film on his own. You realise how crucial that supporting cast was in the first film watching this one. It really does become sort of a a generic buddy movie in Miami, sort of like a lethal weapon knockoff, basically. The car-related stuff is still the most interesting. The stunts are still great. They're still mostly real. And Brian is still fun, but again, the chemistry's just not as good. I missed the rest of the crew. It has a much worse script this time around. It leaves the actors high and dry, this very written-sounding slang, lots of calling people bro and cuz, often by Paul Walker calling people bro, dude, cuz. He didn't do that that much in the first one. It's, it's a little bit rough. And you get this whole side plot with another undercover agent who's already in the organisation. Eva Mendes plays her. She has a little bit of a flirtation with Brian. It's just not necessary. They try and create this sort of parallel, this ambiguous parallel between her and Brian where... Uh, are we supposed to think that maybe she has gone to the dark side like Brian did in the first one? Stuff like that. It just, it's not needed. It's unsuccessful. It really just plays like they felt that they needed a female love interest for Paul Walker to flirt with. But this film did win the Teen Choice Award for Choice Chemistry for Paul Walker and his car. Hey, <laughs> that makes sense. It's available for streaming on Netflix, Stan, Binge, and Foxtel now. Okay, so question... The characterization of Tej and Roman in the seventh movie is that they are sort of the comedic relief, specifically Roman. How similar is their portrayal in Far 7 to their portrayal in this movie? Pretty totally. Like, it's very much the same. Roman is certainly like a lot of. A little Roman goes a long way. Certainly, he works better as a supporting, ca- as a supporting character in the later films than he does as a Duda antagonist in this one he and Tej meet in this first movie yeah. in this movie so they they don't have the same sort of old married couple back and forth yet that will come when they return 
So it is a consistent sort of characterization for that. Yes. That's nice. That's good. That was my only question about this movie. Oh, do they do they beat the heroine dealer? Yeah. Do they let him go at the end? No, they do not. Uh, good. Character development. <laughs> He's learning. Then we move on to The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. It's directed by Justin Lin. Has an entirely new cast. It follows a problem kid named Sean Boswell, played by Lucas Black. He gets in trouble with the law in America. And so as a last-ditch effort, he's sent to live with his father in Tokyo. And he falls in with street racers there and learns about drifting. And he gets a crush on a, on a fellow high schooler named Neela, played by Natalie Kelly. But uh, this causes a rivalry with her Yakuza boyfriend, Takashi, played by Brian T, who also happens to be the ruling drift king in the underground street racing scene. Why is street racing such a big deal for these career criminals? I don't know. It's like every single one of them drives a big, big car. There's an ego to it, you know? It, it, it's a way of putting yourself at risk in a way that is not so lethally dangerous. The, the pieces are coming together here. They're, they're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. They're trying out a new cast now. Maybe we just don't need Brian. They don't need any of the characters, maybe... Bringing Lin in as a director was the best choice that they ever made. He will stay for 4, 5, and 6 as well. He will really be responsible for shaping the franchise into what it currently is. It is a lot less of a Fast and Furious movie. It feels a lot like a like a, a, a teen street racing movie, basically, this time around. It is much more focused on the racing oh, that's good. than the other movies have been. And once again, it misses the crew. The setting makes up for that, though. There's a lot of cool use of Japanese culture, of the Tokyo landscape. It just gives it a different vibe. This sort of neon-coated narrow streets and things like that. It it looks good. It plays well. And the drifting stuff is all good as well. Again, a lot of it done practically. They they hired a lot of real, like the, the real Drift King in Tokyo, which is apparently an actual nickname that he has. He all but invented it drifting around the, the mountains on the outskirts of Tokyo. So... Good on them. It all looks very good. And they are on the verge of figuring out that this is a gang story, that this is an, a story about organised crime in some fashion or another. They just haven't quite put the pieces together of how that's supposed to go. Sean is just a damp squib of a character, though. Uh, Lucas Black is just not very charismatic. The supporting cast is a whole lot more interesting than he is, especially Han, who is introduced in this film, Song Kang. Who, who is Han, and why do I care? Why should I care? That was, my, that was one of my questions. This movie, we will learn, takes place, this third movie, takes place just before, and its second half concurrently with, Furious 7. Fast and Furious 4, 5, and 6 are prequels to Tokyo Drift. Fuck off, what? What? So... So so Han, in this film, towards the end, is killed when his car is T-boned during a street race. We never see... It's, it's presented purely as an accident in Tokyo Drift. We never see the driver of the other car. But you have seen Furious 7. Sure. In which we see Jason Statham do it and walk away as he's calling Dominic Toretto. Hi, Dominic Toretto. You know, you don't know me, but you're about to. It's that scene. Holy shit. And, and that scene where Vin Diesel travels to Tokyo to bring Han home, 
that scene in the underground in, in the in the above ground parking lot that scene where the rapper from the 2000s bow wow approaches sean and says hey there's a guy here he says he knew han he said he was like family that is all footage from tokyo drift the very end of tokyo drift when vin diesel had a cameo that is such an interesting like timeline thing so that's why when it cuts to the next scene when vin diesel and him are talking he looks 10 years older <laughs> and he looks like a 35 year old man instead of a high school student uh he he, he is he has gained a pronounced five o'clock shadow in the five minutes since then five minute shadow man life comes at you pretty fast when you're in that kind of hey life hits hard on the streets so at the end of tokyo drift vin diesel turned up in a cameo because test audiences responded badly to it having nothing to do with the other two movies universal approached vin diesel to it vin diesel did it and the payment that he got was the rights to the riddick franchise the rights to make the third Riddick financed independently. And that's why we have Riddick, is actually Tokyo Drift is the reason why we have the movie Riddick. That's my dude. He knows how to play the game. Lynn brings a, a house style here. It's slick and it's fast and it's exciting. And as you've heard with my discussions of the continuity here, they've tried ever since to make it as important and unskippable as possible <laughs> to justify the fact that it has nothing to do with any one of the previous characters there. Lucas Black is coming back as Sean in F9. So is Bow Wow. I'm trying to think. I'm just scanning here. Is there any other important things that you need to know about this movie? I think that's it. So we move on to Fast and Furious with an ampersand. Once again, directed by Justin Lin. And the OG crew is back now. Brian is an FBI agent. They've overlooked the whole letting the fugitive go thing. And Dom, played by returning Vin Diesel, is on the run once more. And they both end up pursuing this drug king, kingpin, Braga. Because in the first act of this film, Letty is murdered by him. Murdered. Yes. And so they form an uneasy undercover alliance to bring him down. This is almost there. The cast reunion is a plus. Michelle Rodriguez is back to be killed off. Jordana Brewster is back to get in a relationship with Brian again. Sun Kang is back as Han. Because again, this is a prequel to Tokyo Drift. What? One thing that wasn't touched on about, like, the technology used in the Don't movies. think about that, John. Don't think about the fact that everyone's using a flip phone in Tokyo Drift. Just don't think about it. I can't not. Because apparently, apparently flip phones are very big in Tokyo during 2015. Actually, there is apparently a pretty big uh, Japanese market for flip phones, from what I've read. Oh, really? So it's not quite as standout, but they do focus a lot on the flip phones in the filming, which it, it does... <laughs> it's pronounced that this is a bit of an odd thing here. but Couldn't um, they have just... Hold on. <clears throat> Couldn't they have just had it be that he didn't actually die at the end of Tokyo Drift and just bring him back He in... was in a car that blew up. For fuck's sake. Do you actually but see But he him? is alive. He is alive. He's coming back in F9. <laughs> My point exactly! <laughs> He's... What? This is... The... They're bringing him back to life in F9. He has been dead... Ever since Tokyo Drift. No, but, but again, I, I, pre- 4, 5, and 6 are prequels to Tokyo Drift. He, is, he dies again in Furious 7. We see it again from a different perspective. I'm just not seeing what is the point of having these be prequels to Tokyo Drift. Sean, you're getting to a logic point. Because they, they wanted to bring the character back because he turned out to be a fan favourite. 
So bring the character back and say that he got out of the car before it exploded. I think that they also wanted to kind of, like, justify the whole I knew Han, Han was like family thing. That is a line at the end of... You can simply justify it by saying they knew each other and were friends. Alright. I'm not sure why you're getting so worked up about this. Makes perfect sense to me. They're going the <laughs> long way. So yeah, Sung Kang turns up again in this as Han. He's really only in the first few, first 15 minutes of the movie. And then he's just like, oh, where are you going now, Han? He's like, I don't know, I hear Tokyo's pretty interesting. And that's how he exits the film. Um, <laughs> I'm going to drift over to Tokyo. So again, pure waste of time. The movie is unsure of where it's going to take its characters here. Brian shouldn't be a cop. It hasn't figured that out yet. The, for the for this to work as well as it should, Brian needs to be on the same team as everyone else. Yeah. And it does Michelle Rodriguez dirty. It does her dirty by bringing her back in and killing her off after 20 minutes. The plot is really just a repeat of one and two, of them going undercover in a criminal enterprise and taking down a heroin importer. It's like a combination of the first two. It's generic. But the the over-the-top streak of the future films is starting to peek through here. Walker is improved in his performance as Brian. The script has improved as well. And Jordana Brewster makes a lot out of a little. This movie introduces Gal Gadot to the franchise. There is the, the kingpin Braga, who is arrested at the end of the film. I did forget to mention that the FBI guy from the first one, the angry one, Comes back in the second one, and he's the one that's making Brian do his dirty work for him again. I forgot to mention that part. Right. So yes, Gal Gadot is introduced here. Braga is introduced here. He gets sent to prison. He'll be back. Lynn is more uneven and choppy as a director here. There's lots of digital work that doesn't hold up now. This is really the the most reliant on digital that the franchise got, and the negative response is what got them to course correct in the later ones. But they've got all the parts here now. And the movie ends in a much more interesting place. The movie ends with Brian and Mia in a relationship. Brian and Dom having repaired their friendship. Dom has been arrested and is sentenced to life in prison, despite Brian doing everything in his power as a federal agent to stop that from happening. And the last scene of the film is Dom being transported to prison on a prison bus and Jordana Brewster... Paul Walker, and two other characters, Leo and Santos, who had appeared briefly in the opening heist scene in this one. They all pull alongside the prison bus and start to stage a prison break as the movie ends. Brian's gone completely in on the whole gang aspect of it. Fast Five, again, Justin Lin. They The movie starts with that scene. We see them rescuing Dom. They're on the run now. They're in Brazil. Mia is pregnant with Brian's child. Jack. Yes, Jack. And they are being hunted now by Luke Hobbs, played by Dwayne Johnson. Okay, so here's, here's, here's where the rock stuff starts coming into it. He is working for Interpol, and he is after them because they are falsely accused of murdering DEA agents in a heist, when actually it was another criminal element who are now pursuing them as well. They decide, you know what, we're going to do one last big job in Brazil. They're going to steal $100 million from a drug kingpin named Hernan Reyes, played by Joaquin de Almeida. And so they pull in a team to accomplish this. The transformation is complete now. It is a big, brazen action movie. This is a heist film. This is Ocean's Eleven. This is not related to street racing anymore. This is the first of the current iteration of 
Fast and Furious films. Lin is back in fine form here. So is the cast. I get a real kick out of the returns. Everyone is back. Roman is back. Tej is back. Han is back. Gal Gadot's character Giselle is back. Han, by the way, uh, someone asks him, I thought you were going to Tokyo. He says, oh yeah, I never got there. I'll get there eventually. (laughs) Okay, so one question. Can't they just not commit crimes? But, but Jean, that's their whole deal. And they're on the run anyway. They, it's not like they can just get a job. They're on the run from Interpol and American authorities. I would argue due to the shit that those people have pulled, they've made their bed. Well, just stay with me here. Uh, Leo and Santos also turn up from the previous film. Uh, what else here? All right, and Vince is back. Vince, your, guy, Vince, your boy yeah. Vince from the oh, first yeah. one. Leon never turns up again. He's never mentioned ever again. But Vince is back. He partners up with them again. And, okay, I'm struggling to figure out how to unpack this properly. How are his interactions with Brian? Tense, but they come to a grudging respect for each other. Well, that's nice. He's moved on from me, Vince has. He's got a Brazilian wife and child now. Oh, that's nice. Good for Vince. Has he been getting out of the game? He also gets brutally killed. Oh. That's why he's not in Furious 7. So yes, John, he's out of the game. (laughs) His chest piece has been removed. Hobbs is not quite there yet as a character. Johnson is just a brick wall. He is not an antagonist, but he is the opponent for the team for a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, and he is he has not got the sort of charisma and kind of, I don't know, winking humour that the character will get later on. And he's very sweaty here. Like, noticeably, he is dripping with sweat at all times. Like, even when he's not doing anything physical, like he's just standing there and talking to someone... Dwayne Johnson is just dripping with sweat. No one else is. Everyone else is dry as a bone, but Dwayne Johnson looks like he is in real trouble filming in Rio. Like, <laughs> it seems like it does not agree with him. And uh, he has a big fight with Vin Diesel. That's, I mean, it's basically Who like wins? chunks of meat being slapped together, isn't it? <laughs> Vin Diesel wins because Dom finds his secret weapon, which unlocks his berserker rage, a wrench. <laughs> We will see that again in the seventh film. But it's two this time. That's that's a, a reference to, obviously, the first movie where he beat a man half to death with a wrench before the movie started. He talks about it there. Really? Okay, so there is a lot of... Um, there's a lot of stuff that's been written about the sort of diva-ish arguing behind the they scenes. Beef. No, no, not I'm not even talking about that yet. This predates that. That Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham, when he's worked into it, all are really, like, concerned about their characters losing yeah. or getting beaten up. And certainly by the time you get to the seventh film, the fights are constructed in a way that none of them are actually ever physically defeated. Mm. Dwayne Johnson loses the fight with Statham because he has to protect his colleague by being blasted out the window. I would say that that classifies as losing. But he's not, like, he's not like beat one-on-one in a fist fight, you know? The implication is not that Jason Statham could beat up Dwayne Johnson. Because he couldn't. And then when Vin well, actually, Diesel... actually, J- Statham's a martial artist, so I think and he then... can take both The Rock and Vin Diesel. And then... Not at the same time. Not at the same time, but... And then, at the end, you've got the Statham-Diesel fight, which ends with the intrusion of an international private military contractor who blows up the ground that they're all standing on. Like, yeah. again... Mm. It is interesting going into all of that. Again, this is like a high story. It ends with them dragging a 
bank vault behind them through the streets of Rio, behind two fast cars. It's like a less classy Oceans movie, basically. In the end, the drug lord kills all of Hobbs' team except for Hobbs because he was the one that killed the DEA agents and that the team are being framed for in the first place. So Hobbs is finally convinced that they're not all that bad and teams up with them to help them steal $100 million to get back to draw this guy out so he can get revenge for them killing his team. Just go with it. The action's all excellent here. The finale is just full of absurd destruction. The CGI, when they use it, is better. And they've hit gold. At the end of the movie, Hobbs gives them a one-day head start for helping him out, saving his life. They get away with all of the money. When you see them in Furious 7, they are all millionaires. Each of them has about $10 million each. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, as I mentioned, Vince is killed in this one. The movie ends with a post-credits scene when Eva Mendes, reprising her role as the undercover FBI agent from the second film, walks into Dwayne Johnson's office and says, basically check this out, throws down a surveillance photo of Michelle Rodriguez, who is now working with a gang that is hi- that is hitting military convoys. Hmm. Michelle Rodriguez did not know that that scene was in there until she saw it in the theatre. <laughs> so I think it would have been real funny to watch them scramble if she just said, no, guys, I'm not coming back. Figure it out. <laughs> Anyways, Fast and Furious 6, again directed by Justin Lin. The gang has been recruited by Hobbs. They've been called out from their seclusion in non-extradition countries. They're working for the government now, and they are offered pardons if they do what needs to be done here. They're tracking Owen Shaw, played by Luke Evans. He's the guy that's running this gang that Letty is now a part of that's attacking military convoys because Letty has amnesia. Yes, that that was initially one of the things that I was like, what? We see a flashback of her death, which we did not actually see on screen. We only ever heard in flashbacks as the man who killed her described it. Okay, fair enough. And we see now that she, instead of shooting her in the head, as he said he did, he shot the gas tank on of the car that she was crawling out of and she got blasted through the air and down an embankment and Gal Gadot took her to the hospital. But she's got amnesia now. Come to think of it, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense why Gal Gadot wouldn't mention yeah. in the fifth movie. Plot hole there. Oh, th- so this is the first plot hole that has sprung out to you. This is, they're basically secret agents now. The Letty Pool is a real stretch. And the amnesia stuff, I mean, it is very Days of Our Lives, very soap operish now. It's always rough when an amnesia pot like It's Neighbours now. It's like when Susan slipped on spilt milk and thought she was 17 for 10 months. That is true. That did happen. He's not lying. Mm. Well, you have spoiled my life. You have destroyed my happiness. You're really getting the, the family theme starting to poke its way in here. They're going on a lot about family now. And there's sort of these... The, the parallel... Okay, I keep remembering things that I should have mentioned in previous movies. At, in the fifth movie, there's a Brazilian police officer who's working with Hobbs's team, played by Elsa Pataki. In, at the end of that movie, she decides to go with Dom because she's really attracted to him. And they sort of bond over both having lost lovers. He's lost Letty, her husband's been killed. So they shack up. And they're together in the sixth movie. She says, you should totally go and find out if this is really Letty when Hobbs comes to them with this. And at the end, when Letty is back with the crew, she's just like, all right, see you later, guys. I'm just going to leave now. She is the one that Dwayne Johnson saves 
from Statham at the beginning of the seventh. That's why Vin Diesel is so awkward with her when he comes to visit Statham, when he comes to visit Dwayne Johnson in the hospital. Okay, mm. that makes right. sense. Because okay, we yeah. were wondering, because they seemed to have energy there. There was tension I had no context Wait for. for. It. Brief spoilers for the eighth film, Fate of the Furious here. We will discover in the eighth film that by this point, she has already, unbeknownst to Dom, been pregnant with his child, given birth to his child, has not wanted to spring that on him because she wants him to be able to have a honeymoon with Letty first because we find out in the sixth movie that they actually got married in the fourth movie, but we don't know that. So she, the baby, baby Dom, she's given birth to his child at this point. That's another reason why she's so awkward there. And then in the, the eighth movie, Charlize Theron, supervillain Charlize Theron, is going to kidnap her and the child that she has with Dom to force Dom to do her evil bidding. When Dom defies her once, this woman is going to be brutally executed. You following? Okay. Yeah, I can follow. Okay. So Luke Evans is Shaw's brother, and that's why Statham is so mad at seeing him in a bed. Yes. Alright. You see, he's been beaten into a coma. No, he hasn't. He fell out of the back of a plane that was in low-altitude takeoff. Oh, so... So that's the, that's the thing that, uh... Roman talks about with, like, flying harpoons yes. into, the, into the low-flying plane. Mm-hmm. All right. The pieces are coming together. Shaw's crew is sort of an evil mirror image of Dom's crew. He thinks of them as pawns, though, whereas Dom thinks of them as family. Again, I'm loving the commitment to continuity here. Braga is back. Brian goes back to the US to talk to Braga in prison where he explains that secretly he was partners with Shaw the whole time in the fourth movie, and this is how Letty isn't actually dead, etc., etc. They also bring back one of Brian's FBI colleagues from the fourth movie, briefly. Hobbs is more effective here. He's less eye-bulgingly intense. He's got the charisma and the charm that he needs. And we're in full Saints Row territory now here with the action. We're talking tanks rolling around on highways. We're talking cards that are tethered to launching planes. The CGI work here is great. But it is a lot longer than it needs to be, and the script is even more of a mess than usual. The London setting is also a lot less interesting than Rio, and Lin falls into some of the same traps he did in 4, especially in the fights. It also sidelines Jordana Brewster. I'm not a fan of how the series continues to sideline Jordana Brewster. She was only ever involved in the plot all the way through after the first film in the fifth one. So that's available for streaming on Netflix, Stan, Binge, and Foxtel now. They all are, really. And, okay, so at the end of the movie, Shaw gets chucked out of the back of a plane that's in takeoff, goes into a coma, and they're all hanging out, their family again, ha ha ha. We cut to a post credit scene of the events of Tokyo Drift with Han dying. We see them... Um, we see more than we see in Furious 7. We see the events of Tokyo Drift from a different perspective with Jason Statham stepping out, calling someone on the phone and saying, you know, Dominic Toretto, you don't know me, but you're about to. Hmm. Setting up this film. Um, just thinking, is there anything else? No, I think that's about it. That answered most of my questions. Oh, right. And, and Gal Gadot is killed in the sixth film as well. Okay. So now we're going to play for you the trailer to Furious 7. most important thing in life will always be the people right here, right now. That's what's real. Hello? Dominic Terrell. 
You don't know me. You're about to. Who did this? Remember Owen Shaw? This is his big bad brother. He's a special forces assassin. They created a monster. Looks like the sins of London have followed us home. We're being hunted. Shaw lives in a world that doesn't play by your rules. Like it or not, you and your friends are a part of it now. I don't have friends. I got family. This time it ain't just about being fast. Can somebody just walk me through what we supposed to be doing? Yo, Roman, you need some fresh air? <laughs> Just when you didn't think it could get any better, huh? We got mercenaries after us with enough weapons to wipe out small countries. This right here takes crazy to a whole nother level. So what's the plan, Dom? One last ride. Nope, I'm not looking. What's up now? What's up now? What's up now? That was the trailer for Furious 7, the seventh installment in the Fast and Furious franchise. It is a family movie directed by James Wan, and bear with me here because this is going to get weird. Everything seems like it's going great for Dominic Toretto, played once more by a returning Vin Diesel, and Brian O'Connor, played again for the last time by Paul Walker. After achieving blanket pardons for their work with the Diplomatic Security Service in the sixth film, Dom has been reunited with his lost love, the amnesiac Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez. And Brian has settled down into family life with his partner Mia, played by Jordana Brewster, and their baby son. But things soon go awry with the emergence of Deckard Shaw, played by Jason Statham, a rogue British Special Forces soldier and brother of Owen, the villain of the last movie, played by Luke Evans briefly once again in a comatose cameo. Deckard's pissed off that Dom chucked Owen out of the back of a moving plane in low-altitude flight, and he's on the warpath. An attempt on the life of Agent Luke Hobbs, played by Dwayne Johnson, leaves him hospitalised and out of commission, while a quick detour to Japan sees Deckard murder Han, played briefly again by Sung Kang only through archive footage. In the streets of Tokyo, finally incorporating the events of the third film into the main plotline. On the defensive, Dom and his team, including Brian, Letty, Roman Pierce, played by Tyrese Gibson, 
and Tej Parker, played by Chris Ludacris Bridges, are approached by the head of a shadowy government agency, a man who identifies himself only as Mr. Nobody, played by Kurt Russell, who offers them a deal. Nobody is trying to track down a legendary hacker named Ramsey, played by Natalie Emmanuel, who has invented a wacky James Bondian computer program called The God's Eye, which taps into every camera, microphone and information system on the face of the Earth to provide a bird's eye view of pretty much anything to anyone with access to the system. Unfortunately, she's been captured by the famed mercenary Mose Jacande, played by Jaiman Honsu, who plans to use God's Eye for his own nefarious purposes. Prevented from acting himself due to political bureaucracy in Washington, we've all been there, nobody wants Don to rescue Ramsey for him. In return, once they are successful, nobody will let them use God's Eye to locate Shaw so the hunter can become the hunted and the team can go on the offensive. Just try not to focus on the faulty logic there, since Shaw just keeps turning up during the crew's international escapades like he's the fucking nemesis from Resident Evil. Stars! Alright, so before we get too deep into it, why don't we each go around and say our brief 30 second thoughts on Furious 7. Why don't you start us off, John? What were your 30 second thoughts on Furious 7? Three, two, one, go. This movie has sort of given up any kind of desire to be real. It's basically a technological fantasy film, which I'm here for. This is metal as hell. It wants to be a big spy thriller, and it succeeds in that fact. I'm concerned about Brian and why he continues to be roped into these scenarios when he's got a child. Just stay home, dude. You ready, Harley? Three, two, one, go. With ample, like, ties to the first film, and like Lawson made abundantly clear, ties to the rest of the franchise, this movie is certainly placing itself as a culmination of sorts. Uh, specifically for the character of Brian, Paul Walker, unfortunately, passed away during the creation of this film. This is a big, bold action film, and the action is fantastic in that. All right, you got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, go! This is the peak Fast and Furious movie. It's the one that most people have seen. It is, in my opinion, the best. It has incredible action, incredible wacky stunts. It's completed the switch to vaudeville. And given what happened in production with Paul Walker, I have incredible admiration for the grace with which they exit that character from the series but we will get into that. In fact, we should probably start with that, because that's something that's going to run through the whole film. The fact that Paul Walker died during production of this movie, and that he was... that the film was completed using CGI of him, using unused footage from previous movies of him, and using his brothers as doubles. I've got their names here to um, Caleb and Cody Walker stood in, as did the actor who played the right-hand man of Mr. Nobody. He also was used as a, as a double for Brian at different points. And then Paul Walker's face was CGI'd onto them. I will say that the brothers of Paul Walker look incredibly alike Paul Walker, to the point where 
Obviously, they were never going to recast him, but, but one of in particular, I don't know if it's Caleb or Cody, but looks extremely like yeah. Paul Walker. For those bits, you really can't tell. You can tell. I At the end, you can tell, but... A lot of the stuff in the finale is clearly not Paul Walker. Um, yeah, yeah. So hang on here. I've got some notes here. Right. I, I can see a lot of it in the finale. I can see a lot of it in the Abu Dhabi sequence. I can... Everything with Brewster, Jordana Brewster, was apparently done after his death. She was not available to shoot at the beginning of the shoot because she was a series regular on Dallas at the time. So she didn't actually come to shoot her scenes until after he had died. I get conflicting reports on this. I can't seem to find a definitive answer, but there are some reports that his half of the phone conversation with Mia that he has was actually from a deleted scene from Fast Five, which would certainly explain his very underwhelmed reaction to learning he is about to have a second child. The, the character arc that they've got for him here to sort of explain his exit, him missing the bullets is how the movie puts it. If you watch it carefully, the movie is constructing that character arc almost entirely through the dialogue of characters who are not Brian. Yeah. Yeah. It's constructed through conversations with Vin Diesel and Jordana Brewster. It's constructed through one-sided conversations between Vin Diesel and Brian, in which Vin Diesel does a lot of talking, and Brian responds with some fairly generic responses that could have been lifted from other scenes. They are creating an exit storyline for him in a, in a pretty clever manner, I think. I think of all of the ones that we've seen where an actor has died during production and they've had to work around that. I'm thinking, obviously, of Carrie Fisher uh, during the last Star Wars trilogy. I'm thinking of Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Hunger Games, even going to, back to Gladiator. Uh, I, I do think this is the most graceful of all of the, oh, the exits yeah. that have... It, it, it works particularly well. Hmm. And, and Brian talks a lot less than he does in the other films. Yeah. There are a lot yeah. less Brian-focused scenes. He is seen as part of an ensemble a lot more. So with the, with the ending for him, just to sort of touch on the big things about Paul Walker's performance, the ending where they show all of those clips from the rest of the series, from the first movie and onward... It really shows how much they love him. Yeah, he, he and Vin Diesel became really good friends. A lot of the cast were really good friends, so, yeah. So, you can tell that it's definitely a tribute to him. It really did remind me of the stuff they did for Luke Perry on Riverdale. Yeah. The fact that the cast and the crew were so connected to this person that they could... Like, that it was difficult for them to do, but they found the most respectful ways to do it. Mm, yeah. And i got to admit, as someone who hasn't been that connected to the franchise, the ending was still very emotional. It was. The, the, the song that's playing throughout that sequence, it hits pretty damn hard. Because it's, as a song, it is sort of universal in a sense, and even if you aren't connected to these characters, the filmmaking is done in such a way... That it really does feel like oh, oh, you're yeah. seeing this character for the last time. You could play that song. It would be disrespectful, but there's certainly a meme to be done of uh, 
clips from other movies with that song layered over other characters. Yeah. You know, like sometimes inappropriately so, like, um, I don't know, playing it over the end of Downfall. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, man, come like, on. But, like, it, the, the music is incredibly evocative. Oh, yeah. Um, it is. It is very evocative. And it, the movie is, frankly, it's breaking the fourth wall at that point. It's not really yeah. acknowledging yeah. the fact that it's a movie, but, but it knows that we're thinking about Paul Walker. It knows yeah, that we uh, know that the actor has passed away, and that the narration from Vin Diesel is very much plays like narration from Vin Diesel, not necessarily narration from Dom. Yeah. Yeah, and that whole bit on the beach where the characters are talking about Brian leaving, it doesn't feel like the characters. Like you said with the narration, it doesn't feel like Dominic Toretto, it just feels like them. Hmm. And and that's why it's so emotionally evocative to me. I'm, I'm not seeing a character from a franchise leaving. I'm seeing these people who lost a friend who was really close to them do their best to honor him. Yeah. And that's how it hit me. And it's just, it's a really nice way to send that character off. Like the, like the simple action of having him and Dom driving side by side and then him separating and driving off into the sunset as the screen goes to white. That is mm. a really, it's a simple and bittersweet way to, to it is quite that. beautiful. Apparently, the the shot, the overhead shot of Dom continuing straight forward and uh, Brian branching off to the left resembles a parade maneuver that air, aircraft fighters yes. do when they're yeah. they've lost someone in combat. It's just the the one thing I will say that obviously it's not the most disappointing thing. The most disappointing thing is that Paul Walker is no longer with us. But it is disappointing that. In order to give the character respect and to give the character an appropriate conclusion, Jordana Brewster is sort of forced out of the franchise as well. Yeah. Yeah. She is back in F9, but I'll be interested to see how they... Maybe they'll just do it like they did in Fast and Furious 6 and 7, where they're just like, Brian's home with the kid. And, like, it is... There's a very awkward scene in Fate of the Furious where they struggle to justify why they don't call Brian and Mia. So... I am actually convinced that there will be one more scene in the last movie we will see Brian again, whether that is from a distance, from the back, or with his archive footage. footage. But um, I I believe that, I don't know, the final scene of the Fast and Furious franchise is probably going to be one of those barbecues, and I think that Brian will be in it somehow. Yeah, I can see that too. And it is... It is a shame that Jordana Brewster has been sort of sidelined, and I'm glad she's coming back in the next one, which I feel like I'm going to probably see. I'm probably going to rewatch all of these movies. At some point. At some point. And what she does in this movie is a lot of really good work, hmm. even though she's not in enough of it. She said that she had a really tough time because That's all of her perfectly scenes reasonable. Were, were related to Brian. And none of them were yeah. performed with Paul Walker. I can understand that. Like, and that's kind of the pole that's hanging over the whole thing, hmm. too. But let's have a talk about some of the other characters. And I have to say, I like the character of Shaw. Yes. Like, he Deckard is Shaw fun. is such a... He's a, such an interesting character. He's 
he's referred to as a ghost and a shadow throughout the whole thing. And like Lawson said, he's kind of like, he always pops up when it's least I enjoyed opportune. that so much. I enjoyed that in Abu Dhabi, he just rocks up and I'm like, yeah, he's been following them, because why wouldn't he be? And he's coming for like, revenge. Like, Dom, hit him with a car. Like, just reverse yeah. over him a few times. When he walked out of the elevator, I'm like, is he the bloody Terminator or something? Well, it's an extraordinary opening scene, too. All in one shot as he's delivering in his monologue, then he walks out yeah. to reveal the totally destroyed hospital room he goes down the elevator walks out the, f- the facade of the building collapses behind him it's a good introduction i'm just sitting there thinking you know you could have just visited him you could have just signed could have just signed in and like and how he like well no because he's on the run from the government he hands the person he hands one of the um <laughs> it's the a grenade. guys a grenade yeah. and just pushes him and, and look like Shaw loves his grenades he really does and they- again uh, spoilers for Hobbs and Shaw here briefly, extremely inconsistent with what they are now trying to do with with Shaw by turning you into a hero. He didn't yeah. actually betray his country. He was framed by a, uh, a, a secret tech cult, death cult, who believe that the world is going to end in 2096 unless they take over the world with their cyborg army of super soldiers. All right. But he did murder that whole hospital. I know. It doesn't... That change in characterization does not fit with the events of this movie. Like, because, like, Shaw in this played very well by Jason Statham. He's a really sinister figure. Like, when he shows up in Dobbs' office, he's silhouetted in the shadows. They're having that tense conversation. And they have an awesome hand-to-hand fight scene. Yeah, they Um, they use Statham perfectly. This is the kind of character you get him to play. It's smart work to cast him. Yeah. Because it's... I mean, it's putting him alongside Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson. Mm. And let's be honest, that Jason Statham is, is the British Vin Diesel. Yeah. And and Vin Diesel himself is, like, the first draft of Dwayne Johnson. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, like, it works. And it works for the character, too, because the character doesn't get a lot of development here. No. We, we, no. He is, like, pure revenge. Yes. He turns up, and it works because it's Jason Statham. If it turns up and it's, like, some guy, it doesn't work nearly as well. But the fact that it's Jason Statham and he brings along all of the baggage that Jason Statham brings along with him, that's what makes it work. And you know what we need now is Nicolas Cage in one of these movies. Yep. As, like, Mr. Nobody's brother or some shit. Well, we'll, we can move on to that. I'm convinced that the... They've talked about that the 10th and 11th movie, which are going to be the last ones... They've suggested that that might be one story split into two. And I am convinced that Mr. Nobody is going to be the villain. Yeah? Yeah, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. I like him. So do I. I I was like, I like him. Kurt Russell is great and he's having a lot of fun. But throughout the movie, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. The authorities in the Fast and Furious movies, Hobbs being the sole exception, are never the good people. They're never the competent people. No. In any of them. They never want that. So it is a little. I just feel like all of the stuff that he's been getting, the uh, <laughs> the, the God's Eye, um, in in the the next. Yeah, it's built. It's building up to some yeah. proper shenanigans. Yeah, I do I... like his back and forth about the alcohol, the beer with mm. Dom. Oh, and that's but great he... casting too. Getting Kurt Russell in there. Yeah. Yeah. Denzel Washington was offered that role and turned it down. 
Like, you can tell that Kurt Russell is there because they want to show some respect to the titans of the genre. Like, Kurt oh, yeah. Russell. Just is... that scene where he puts on the special glasses. Like, that's yeah. such a they live yeah. nose. Oh, yeah. I love how Juan shoots his action scenes. Yeah. They're quick and frenetic at times, but it's always clear. Like It's shaky, knows... not in a bad way. It's shaky to denote force and aggression, but it's never messy, you know? Like, he, he has such a great eye for those scenes, and the, chore- the choreography is oh, simply the outstanding. Is great. Yeah. Like, like you, see the, you see that in that first fight between Hobbs and Shaw, how Shaw is, on a technical level, the faster and most skilled, more skilled fighter, whereas Hobbs is coming in with, like, it's just power. Power. And I like the fact that Shaw gets the win state by bringing out an explosive to sort of, like, play underhanded. Because that underhanded nature really works for the character. And you get that again. You get that when he pulls out the knife and, like, goes through his leg. Or well, when yeah, he pulls out the gun later on when he confronts Vin Diesel and says, what, you thought this would yeah. be a street fight. Yeah. Their version of the Mexican standoff is literally driving their cars into each other at a high speed. <laughs> they were playing chicken, but they smashed right into each yeah. other. But Shaw had reinforced his car. I was sitting there thinking, just get out of the car and f- cars and fight. What is your deal? <laughs> but this like, is a car franchise, cool. John. Everything is cars. Everything is speed. Brum, brum. I know when, when Toretto saw Shaw at the... Like cemetery, I would have loved it if his paranoia had just gotten to him, and it was just some guy. <laughs> Can I? I don't think we've necessarily capitalized on the fact that you guys hadn't seen any other Fast and Furious movies between the first one and this. What is your oh. reaction watching this movie when it opens with a comatose Luke Evans? <laughs> I was sitting there going, "That's Luke Evans. Jason Statham is mad." Okay. And the reveal okay, of the because car. I had, because I had read the synopsis on, you know, the the tag stuff on Stan, it's like, oh, he's coming for revenge for his brother. Luke Evans, probably his brother. That's... Yeah. And it's like, family's the whole so thing. The he's coming for revenge. Fair enough. I did get upset when the house blew up, though. That was a statement of intent. Yeah, they show a lot of reverence to the... To the first film in a fun way. Shaw blows up the house. They show race wars again. Name's still unfortunate. We get Hector. Yes, Hector. We see back. Hector again. He's not in for much, but it shows that the world is consistent. Mm-hmm. Can I just say about that house explosion? I love the little detail of Brian throwing the door to the van shut to protect yeah. his son and getting yeah. blasted up against the glass. Yeah. I expected his like forehead to be bleeding. <laughs> After that, that's that's done particularly well. I love how they bring it back to LA for the final sequence, even if it breaks logic, which it which it frequently does. I love the I love the heist on the bus where Ramsey's being kept. It is a great great sequence with a real top quality hench person. Let me just say here, you might be getting a little bit of background noise from my audio because it is raining. I apologize if that's the case. It's not much I can do about it. Yeah, exactly. But surely, but surely, Lawson, you can control the weather. Well, I have to keep that on the down low, Harley, because if everyone knows, then all of a sudden I get inundated with requests. <laughs> yeah. We we get a high-quality henchman here. Like, yeah. 
and he has that sort of like back and forth with Brian, which I found really fun, especially in the in the finale where they have that really sick fight. Yeah. That was really well done. The action is just simply top-notch. Oh, and we saw, was it Ludacris' plan to drive the cars out of the plane? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, but why, though? Just get there really early. <laughs> so it's so- honestly that simple. Just get there it's like, really it's early. It's cool. It's cool. Like, logic, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's cool. What is your reaction experiencing this cold? Interpol headquarters is blowing up, and the house is blowing up, and they're air dropping into the the part where they face off, Vin Diesel face off with Jason Statham, and then a secret government agency comes in and there's Mr. Nobody all of a sudden and there's Look, I, I expected stuff like that to happen. I've been forged through the fires of Mission Impossible and the Bond franchise. This is so much wilder than any... Like, you got to consider the starting out point for this, though. Yeah, I know, but yeah, you I had do. already... I had been warned sufficiently that shenanigans were afoot, so... We were prepared for the shenanigans to be afoot. I was prepared to go a bit weird, but when it came to the flying the cars out of the back of the plane, <laughs> it's like, I don't understand why Mr. Nobody is like, I like this plan. I think it could work. <laughs> And I like, think it's because it's crazy. I feel like the only reason he's doing that is because if they die doing this, it's no skin off his nose. Hmm. And if they succeed, he's got nothing but to gain from it. Can I just say that that whole stunt, mostly practical. They actually drop yeah. cars out of a plane with yeah. parachutes attached. They drop people alongside them and refilm it. When it came time to land them, they had them on a crane that they lowered them to make it look like they were coming from us. From a- yeah. High distance. And that car action when they do land, that's some top-notch stuff as well. They do the drive-under thing as well, mm-hmm. which is a classic move from... They do the run up the back of the truck as it's going over the edge. Yeah. There's yeah, a little callback to the cool scene too. at the kindergarten that he doesn't know how to open the, the door. <laughs> it's the overhead button. And that's yeah. how he knows to go straight for the overhead button when he's looking for the open door yeah. on the on the van, on the bus. <laughs> it's so well constructed, those sequences. Uh, the Abu Dhabi scene <laughs> sequence. Holy shit. When it jumped from the first building to the second building, I was like, uh, no brakes. Well, of course it's got no brakes. It's just that the car is there for show. But then it's like, oh, uh, so how are you going to stop the car? We're not. Well, shit goes through this into the third building and i saw all of those terracotta statues i'm like no priceless artworks you've killed them it's such a great visual visual scene mm. yeah, it, yeah it is it, it is my favorite was, set piece of the film when it co- like when the car comes out of the first building and it's silhouetted, silhouetted with, the, with sun. the sun it's like that's that aquaman shit james wan hell yes like, he has such a great eye for framing shots like that. Mm. Like, pull it, pulling out of the action to show us s- sort of the scale of things. Yeah. Um, and good fight scene between Ronda Rousey and Rochelle Rodriguez, too. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I was thinking, after seeing her in this movie, and knowing that she filmed this pretty much back-to-back with The Expendables 3, if you need someone to replace Gina Carano as Kyra Dune in Mando... Get Ronda Rousey. I think they should get Laverne Cox just to really annoy all of the people that are angry that Gina Carano's gone. I, it's like, I know. Like, pocket scene in the eyes sort of I know, but for that. Okay, so Ronda Rousey is the f- less Gina Carano, by the way, in Fast and Furious 6. Huh. Mm. 
Makes sense. Ronda Rousey is the choice that creates less friction. Laverne Cox is the right choice. Laverne Cox is the I choose chaos choice. I, I would just lo- I would just like to see her in a Star Wars property. I think like, that would be fine. She's got the right energy for it. Uh, I do have to say the amnesia plotline does nothing for me. No, me neither. Uh, eh, I don't like it. Most of this movie, most of what I enjoyed with this movie is the set pieces. Yeah. The action sequences. I absolutely adore the the LA final Zone sequence fight. stuff. It's all top-notch bullshit, when, and I love yeah, it. Yeah, when Jimon Honsu says in his kind of bizarre accent, send the predator, I just thought, oh, so it's either they're sending a drone, they're sending an actual predator, where he's going to go... <sighs> Or, or, and here's the actual singer of this joke, they're going to send a guy with a bespectacled man with his pants up to his chest with a thin pencil moustache and they're going to drop him out of the helicopter. See, and the sad part is is you're editing this segment so we can't delete it, that bit. (laughs) Anyway, like, the stuff with the Predator drone, as as soon as that popped out of the helicopter, I'm like, Hell yes. What? There is so there is literally so much property damage. Oh, there's going to be an international uh, incident. There's there's casualties too, like cars are getting exploded, cop cars are being blown up mid drive. It's it's insane. This is gonna be a big deal. It's gonna have to be. I assume that none of it gets mentioned again. Not really. <laughs> yeah. No. I did like how the rock decided, I'm not going to sit it out this time. I've finished filming Hercules so I can be in the final section yes, of this movie. that is why he is taken out of commission for an hour and a half, is so yeah. he can go and film Hercules. But it's so like he comes the back, coolest... breaks his cast, and straps what is essentially a 44 Magnum into his, his holster. It's like, if you fire that gun, your arm is going to shatter like a glass dropped out and, of a like, building. He, 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 he destroys the drone by driving an ambulance <laughs> off a bridge, smacking the drone from on top, busting out of the broken windshield of the ambulance, unscathed, mind you, double taps the drone with a pistol. Somehow grabs... Grabs the chain gun off of the drone. Which somehow has a trigger. walks around... Firing at the helicopter. And you get that line from Michelle Rodriguez where she's like, Hey, did you bring the cavalry? Woman, I am the cavalry. Of course you are. I'm confused as to how he can fire that chain gun <laughs> when. It doesn't matter. All re- it, by it, all it doesn't logic, matter. It shouldn't matter, have a trigger. It, does like, it doesn't not matter. matter. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's he is awesome. the rock. That's how. I don't care. He is Dwayne like, Johnson. He will. Like, he wills it to fire (laughs) with his mind. He, and I love at the end where, like, where, like, he turns up at the parking structure again to shoot down German Honsu, but it's like, the implication is that for the last ten minutes, he's just been running through that tunnel with the minigun. Just like, his pure awesomeness is prepared. Did we really need the German Honsu character? I don't think we did. I think he is... He's utterly wasted in this movie. I feel like Hollywood doesn't know what to do with Jan Honsu. I know. I no. feel like he's always like... playing the 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 foreign the henchman. Person. I was in... saying this while we were watching the movie when he said, "Oh no!" It was when he was firing at them from the helicopter. 
I turned to Harley and I said, he was in Armistad. Hmm. Like, what, what is hap- what, what is Jimon Honsu's career? I mean, because, he's an Oscar nominee. Yeah. Like, he, he's an, he's a capital A actor. He plays supporting roles in blockbuster he films. He plays the henchman in every Hollywood blockbuster film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Where's his starring role? Where is his starring role? And, you know, who knows what the original conception of this movie was before the Paul Walker thing happened. Yeah. Um, I imagine that maybe that's something we'll find out as the years go on when the Fast and Furious making of book is written. Maybe there'll be more detail there. Maybe there was something more to that character that would attract or justify Jaime Honsu appearing in it. But... As it stands, it's like, we don't even really need the character. No. And we certainly don't need an Oscar nominee as the performer. Mercenary number one. Mm. It's like, it's a damn shame. It just, it just feels like he's just playing generic villains in all of his roles now. Like, then you get him for... Then you get him... Then you get him for bit parts in Aquaman and Shazam. In Shazam, he plays the, the wizard. And in Aquaman, he plays the fisher... Min King who gets killed. Yeah, and it's it's such a shame because he is a good actor. We've seen him be a great actor. Yeah, I would have loved if this mercenary character had more energy to him, if he was interesting. Like, when when Vin Diesel drove backwards off the cliff with Natalie Emanuel, I would have loved if Honsu's character said, what is that? Who does that? Well, that would sort of like, have broken just... the entire tone of the movie, Sean. Not really. Certainly would have broken the tone of the character. Then change the character. Make the character interesting. What, so, so they can work in your not very good joke. No, I mean, like, give him more give him, personality. Give him, uh, give him a personality. Mm. Not just, I'm angry give and I'm coming. Give him something to do. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know he can do it. You know he can do it. So why do people keep underutilizing him? It's frustrating. Yeah. I adore the final confrontation between Toretto and Shaw. Yeah. It is simply cool. They start out doing the, like, the playing chicken shit again, but Toretto is using his dad's car. Oh, that whole time I'm like, don't ruin the car. Don't oh, ruin the car. Oh, it's been destroyed and rebuilt in every movie. <laughs> it's back in the... But it, it's back in Fate of the Furious. It's fine. The moment he walked into his garage, I'm like, no. No, you're bringing the car back. It's like that... Don't do this to it's me. It's like that ship. What's that ship where if you just... Re- the ship of Theseus. Yeah, the ship of Theseus. It's that... Is it really his dad's car anymore? It's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times. Is there yeah. really anything left of the original? Like, when he when he's playing chicken with Shaw again, he pops it up. Yeah. And just, like, nails the front of Shaw's car. And that was really cool. Shaw pops out of his car, like... Breaks off. Grabs bits of the car. Shards of the car. The the Brian Tyler score there as well just yeah. peaks. Because the whole point, it's building this huge crescendo, and I'm just like, do a choir, do a choir, do a choir. And then they actually do a choir for the only time in the whole movie <laughs> just to highlight this utterly absurd shot, slow motion shot of Jason Statham and Vin Diesel <laughs> rushing at each other in the in the night, wielding shrapnel and wrenches like swords.
Not one wrench. Lawson mentioned he pulls out a big wrench in one of the previous films. He's got he's two got wrenches, two, baby. baby. Mm. Like, he's packing. They're both door wielding, like doing that Star Wars shit. And you can it's tell Bri- over the course of the movie, you can tell Brian Tyler is having fun. He's he's got a sense of proportion about these these movies. He knows what they are, and like he's doing the work. I don't like how the fight ends, though. No, I I like the ground is collapsing and the stamp on the ground to make him fall. That I was like cool, that. but I didn't That's like the cool. line. It, oh, his yeah. line is bad. The... It's an incredibly stupid line. There's actually a lot of dialogue in this movie that's just like, that's so dumb. Yeah. Thing about street fights? The street always wins. <laughs> a, a better line would have been, the thing about street fights is, there has to be a street to fight on. Bang. That's bad too. That's, the one I would yeah. have gone with, it's like... That makes sense, but it's also bad. The one I would have gone with is, the thing about Street Fighters is, you made a mistake when you decided to fight me on mine, or something like that. Like, LA is his area, is his home, like, home field advantage sort of thing. (laughs) What if instead of saying a line, Vin Diesel just screamed, FAMILY! And stopped really hard. (laughs) Or just like, this is for harm, smash. Even that would have worked. This is for harm, because apparently they're really good friends. They're family. (laughs) But it's like, it's such an audacious sequence it is. of escalating nonsense that... The whole, that's a good way of describing this whole movie, frankly, is escalating nonsense. <laughs> I'm assuming like, Fate of the Furious gets even more ridiculous. No, it doesn't really, actually. Like, they sort of reached a plateau here. Like, when you're, when you're racing drones through downtown Los Angeles and jumping cars from one skyscraper to another and dropping armadas of fast cars outside of airplanes so that they can parachute in to do a heist on a, you know, private military company. Is there really anywhere you can go from there that's bigger? There is, there is, there is no... Short of going to space. Which they keep threatening to do. Do you reckon they'll ever actually bite the bullet and do it? I could see them maybe getting a rocket. I don't think they'll leave the atmosphere. Oh. Mm. We'll just like, have to like see. Like one of those, um, like one of those, like high altitude planes that make you float around and shit. Or maybe, maybe they just give up. You know, maybe they're just like, fine. Mister Nobody has a secret space station, space laser thing, and he's up there with the God's Eye, and they've got to go and do sort of a Moonraker assault on it. Absolutely, Moonraker is a classic. Retrofitted, retrofitted Dune sports buggies. Oh. On the moon. He, imagine it. Dom re, redoes his dad's car, muscle car, makes it capable be of being driven on the face of the moon. It'd be like that uh, that car chase, that moon car chase out of Ad Astra, but stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, in a lot of ways, I need to see that before, before the franchise ends. That would just be awesome. The Lost and the Furious needs to be insane. <laughs> yeah. The Lost and the Furious needs to have a giant operatic score. This it needs to be their Bohemian Rhapsody. I I had such a great time with the action sequences yeah. in this that frankly I don't care what else happened. Like we get the action sequences and we get the really beautiful tribute to Paul Walker, and frankly that's all I care yeah. about. And all of that is done with such style, audacity, and heart. Yeah. That. I cannot help but actually 
really, really dig this film. Mm-hmm. Look, the franchise has issues with representation for women, for sure. And they are there's a lot of eye candy I bits say, in this movie. Well, presentation. I wouldn't say representation because you've got all. Sure. You actually got you got Michelle Rodriguez. You got yeah. Gal Gadot in the previous movies. You even have the people coming in like Ronda Rousey and people like that. But but presentation certainly is certainly the 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 focus great. on short shorts and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, and it's well, like that. That is that that is the sort of market they're going for. Yeah, like. Car heavy race heads, and you know, you know what? At the same time, Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson, and they're taking their shirts off a lot in these movies. Too. They are. I did like seeing Vin Diesel wearing a suit. It it makes him look like a more distinguished pit bull. He Vin yeah. Diesel does kind of look like an action figure of Dwayne Johnson that like went wrong in the execution. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just it was too small. Um, like. Like, it shrunk down a little bit. Uh, the paint is all wrong on it. Yeah. yeah. I, I do like Vin Diesel in this. He's just not doing as much interesting stuff no. as he is on the first. It's like, it's dry in comparison for him. A- apart from the bit at the bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've, they've really, as I said last week, they made the transition into making him a pretty generic action hero. I mean, yeah. even by the time we pick up with him in the fourth one, he is... A Robin Hood character. They've taken off the sharp edges. He is stealing gas to give to the poor. Oh, you know what they're gonna do in the next movie? They're gonna have it be that Dom didn't actually beat that guy up. It was his brother. Oh, God. Why do I think you're right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm right. <sighs> oh, that's so good. Like, remove all the sharp edges you remove from Dom absolutely all doubt <laughs> that this guy has had an inch of darkness in his life. And I'll be like, but, but Dom, why did you say that you did? And he's like, I did it for my family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my point exactly. Like, then, then why were you so traumatized by doing it? Because it's horrible. Because I was sorry for what my brother did. I've been sending that man money ever since. God. That's where... That's, uh, so... Or... And you can have it be like, I sent him that million dollars I, I, we got from the heist in Rio. Or some nonsense yeah. like that. I'm uh, looking so... forward to seeing John Cena in that movie, inexplicably playing Vin Diesel's brother. He seems more like Dwayne Johnson's brother than Vin Diesel. Yeah, but, you know. Like, adopted, yeah, but... Or just, like, half-brother. Mm. Yeah. I can see Jordana Brewster being John Cena's sister easier than I can see her being Vin Diesel's sister. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It's like facial features, yeah. just like it, they have trouble mapping. Um, because Vin Diesel is has quite a unique look to him. There is no relevant IMDb Parents Guide information this week. In fact, I think we should stop mentioning it, and mentioning it unless there is. Because yeah. oftentimes yeah. there isn't. So we'll do that going forward. So why don't we move on to what our favourite scene or sequence was for the film and who our MVPs are. I will start off and I will say that my MVP is James Wan. Yep. I think that what he has pulled off here with the action and with the incredible staging of of all the wildness that's going on here, it's great. It's the best directing job of the movie. It really shows why he is such an effective director. It really... I mean, let's be honest, it got him the Aquaman job, this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it really shows that talent. But even more than that, I'm giving it to him because of what happened with Paul Walker. 
he was left with a very unenviable position in trying to pull something together with losing one of his lead actors halfway through. Yeah. And getting not only a legible storyline out of that, but one that was respectful and one that uh, retired that character in a graceful way. And I think he really succeeded. I think that the exit that has been constructed for Paul Walker here is wonderful. I think that it's been dealt with the best that I've ever seen one of these unfortunate circumstances dealt with. It's dealt with better than in Rise of Skywalker. It's dealt with better than in The Hunger Games. It's it's just been managed in a very graceful way. And so I'll give it to James Wan. And on the back of that, I need to, to give my favourite scene or sequence to the ending. I do have a bit of a different relationship with it than you guys. I have seen all of these movies. I have watched spent more time with Brian and watched the character's evolution as it has gone on and watched the evolving chemistry of Paul Walker with the other members of the cast and watched the the behind-the-scenes features where I've learned about how good friends they are and how Paul Walker... how Vin Diesel was the godfather of Paul Walker's child, how after he died, Vin Diesel named his daughter... Pauline that he had the next year after he died that in the eighth movie Dom will name his son Brian which doesn't make a whole lot of sense within the context of the films itself that he's naming his kid after his brother-in-law but whatever it's Mm. there is an emotional attachment to that character and to what happened behind the scenes here that that I get because I've seen all of these movies in a row that I've binged these movies uh like this and it's it's such an effective ending for that character. It's it's a beautiful way to end the film. It it lets the audience come to terms with it, and it lets the cast say goodbye in a, in a elegant way. And the word that I keep coming back to is graceful. This feels yeah. like an ending. It feels like an ending, not like a panicked scrambling to write him out. It feels like something that they have actually done with a deft hand. Yeah, there's, there's, there's thought and compassion. In a movie as bombastic and crazy and, yes, stupid, uh, joyously so, as this yeah. movie is, to end it like that, to, to really, as I said, talk to the audience, basically, just to say, we know what's going on here and we, we all know that we need this. That's really effective and it is certainly one of the, the most memorable moments of the franchise so yes the end for me yeah i would have to agree that i give my mvp to james wan as well he has such a brilliant eye for action and even the regular scenes they're shot very well as well and again the the deft hand at which he approaches paul walker's death and and handling that on the screen it it feels like he delegated a lot of that to Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel, of course, knew him longer and all of that, and that show that's the sign of a really good director. He had, like you said, unenviable position, but he knew not to make it too much. It's it's handled with a word that is hard to really use in terms of the franchise. Restraint. The franchise isn't known for that, and that's handled very well. James Wan is one of my favorite directors working both in the horror sphere and in the action sphere. I'm excited to see what he does in the future. My favorite scene and sequence, because you already talked about the finale in detail there, we talked about it in detail to start. 
I'm gonna have to say my favorite Cena sequence is the L.A. stuff. The the that whole bombastic, stupid, insane, joyous action sequence with all of the elements, all of the different sort of fight scenes coming together. It's just top tier action nonsense, and I loved every single minute of it. Okay, for me, I'm gonna sort of go against the grain and say I. I give my MVP to every single stunt performer, stunt director, stunt driver, all of them. Get my props for this movie, because they did a hell of a job. And it all works so smoothly. I just can't respect stunt people enough. It's just exceptional, the work they do. And specifically in this franchise, as a whole. I think for my favorite scene, it's gotta be the stuff in Abu Dhabi. It's... The st- all of the stuff at the party, the fight scene between Ronda Rousey and Michelle Rodriguez, the sort of how Roman dismantles a guy, how Roman no that how That's Tej dismantles Tej, a guy, yeah. yeah, which was just exceptional. We didn't really uh, discuss your thoughts on Roman. He's, He's fine. a bit divisive. He's fine. Like I like how they use him as a distraction in that scene. And judging I, from what I've seen of Tyrese Gibson behind the scenes, not a lot of that is acting. A lot of that is just Tyrese Gibson yeah. in a way that Fair seems enough. like it would be really exhausting to hang out with him for pe- long periods of time. And I like the, you know, driving the car in between the three buildings. That beautiful, beautiful car. That beautiful car. car that just gets absolutely demolished by the end. It's just it's a great fair. sequence that looks exceptional. Uh, so what have we got next week, Lawson? Well, next week we will be talking about a movie that I watched and within 20 minutes I was like, this is a Jean movie specifically. Uh, I think it is a, tw- <laughs> a twin movie in general, but Jean needs to see this because it, it something is wrong with the world if he hasn't. So I have not. It's fun- so it's fundamentally him. Yes. It is very much his sense of humour. It's very Austin Powersy. We will be talking about the pretty classic satire of summer camp movies, Wet Hot American Summer. If you would like to follow along at home, well, you're shit out of luck. <laughs> it's not available for streaming in Australia. It's not available for digital pur- purchase in Australia. It's If it was released on DVD or Blu-ray in Australia, then it is long since out of print. I watched it via an imported Blu-ray, and we're moving heaven and earth to get Harley and John the chance to see it before next week. So if you would like to watch along at home, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, contact Universal. They own the copyright. <laughs> yell, at, yell at Netflix for not picking up the first movie, but only doing the series. So yes, we'll be doing that next week. All right, so... If you want to reach us, you can find each of us at our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Council. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. Those links are in the description, along with the link to our Twitter. Our Twitter is the best place to provide us with episode-specific feedback and also movie recommendations for John and myself. You can also comment on your podcast app of choice. Those podcast comments are on the podcast on the whole, not for specific episodes. And if you comment, rate, and subscribe... It really does look good for the algorithm. You know, the algorithm that will eventually turn into the robot overlords that I have to go through the wasteland avoiding on my search for the last piece of written literature when everything has been turned into code. I will fail, of course, robots being superior to humans in every single way, except in the way that truly matters, having a soul. I will fall (laughs) 
before I reach my goal. <laughs> Vaporized by a small robot that looks like a squirrel, which I reach down to pet. I gotta say, I'm loving how, how complex its, this is. A furry yeah. exterior. Um, I would like to get to, at one point, a few years from now, where we do the podcast and it's two hours, but then there's just another three hours of audio as you <laughs> recite an elaborate narrative of your inevitable escapades in the robot wasteland. As, as the charred remains of your skeleton are cooled by the nuclear winter brought on by our robotic overlords, a metal foot will come down on your skull crushing it like they did to the human resistance. Absolutely. So, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Everything I would do, you were standing there by my side And now you're gonna be with me